I'm Spencer Levy, and this is The Weekly Take. This week, we warm up to cold storage and industrial. The cold storage sector is definitely one of those behind-the-scenes supply chains that people don't think of much. You think about getting your food at a local restaurant or at a grocery store, uh, you don't really think about how it got there. That's Fred Bowler, whose company Americold oversees more than a billion cubic feet of refrigerated storage space, an integral and ever more important part of the global supply chain. The amount of money and the amount of capital that now want to be in industrial real estate is staggering. And that's Barbara Perrier, who began her career with a deal to lease a freezer building to an ice cream company, and after 31 years at CBRE, is now part of the leading industrial capital markets team in the United States. The cold hard facts on cold storage and the industrial sector, right now on The Weekly Take. Welcome to The Weekly Take. I'm delighted to be joined by Fred Bowler, President and CEO of Americold, the largest publicly traded company in the cold storage space. Fred joins us from Americold's worldwide headquarters in Atlanta. Hello, Fred. Hi, Spencer. Thanks for having me today. And hello to Barbara Perrier, CBRE's Vice Chairman and one of the world's leading expert in industrial sales, joining us from her home in Pasadena, California. Barbara, welcome. Thank you, Spencer. Happy to be here. So let's begin with cold storage. And I think few people thought a lot about cold storage until the COVID crisis, when there was some scarcity in things from chicken nuggets to everything that you get in your refrigerator. So Fred, tell us a little bit about the sector and how it may have been impacted by the current COVID-19 crisis. Uh, Well, thanks for that. And uh, yeah, the cold storage sector is definitely one of those behind the scenes uh, supply chains that people don't think of much. You think about getting your food at a local restaurant or at a grocery store, uh, you don't really think about how it got there, right? And so that's where our assets really kind of come into play. So we, we provide mission critical infrastructure from the point of food manufacturing all the way to the point of that consumer acquisition and everywhere in between. So we have assets that are in agricultural sites and beef production sites and those types of things uh, that probably are not high on your tourism uh, list of places to go visit, where we bring product hot off the manufacturing line and bring it to a frozen temperature. Uh, Quite a bit of infrastructure. The change that hit us with COVID is, you know, food manufacturers typically are making product for both restaurant chains as well as your retail product that you get. When COVID hit, it was It was like a light switch went off overnight and everybody started consuming their groceries through the retail channel instead of the restaurant channel. So, you know, the manufacturers had to shift gears in terms of how they were packaging product and what they were actually manufacturing. That just changed what was coming through our facility. Uh, But at the end of the day, both of those channels come through our infrastructure in a a very, very similar way. Barbara, Fred suggested that His asset type, cold storage, is not one that a lot of people visit on vacation. Not a lot of people are visiting traditional industrial either, except for investors who have made industrial perhaps the number one asset class over the last several years. Barbara, what's your perspective on how industrial became perhaps even more popular during the COVID crisis and any comment you might have on cold storage? You know, what happened in COVID is anybody who was not using the internet became an internet adapter quickly. And so the e-commerce numbers are going off the charts. I talked to a lot of the e-commerce providers and a couple of the real large ones. We've done two deals over this COVID period. But what I would tell you they're telling me is that 
they found that they were not prepared for the amount of business. And so that has really changed industrial. The next the part of the cold storage equation is having food delivered. You know, I love to cook and I like to pick out my tomatoes and I want to pick up the cantaloupe and I want to touch it and feel it. During COVID, that all went by the wayside and food was being delivered. And now it's so easy. It's like, do you really want to go to the grocery store? Do you really want to put, you know, gloves and masks and wash all your groceries when you get home? I kind of think that people have changed and my kids love to shop with groceries online, but I think now our generation and and even my parents' generation are getting used to doing it uh, a different way. But consumption didn't go up, right? It just changed, right? It just shifted to a, to a retail consumption. And even with e-commerce going up, most of that e-commerce, well over 98% of that e-commerce, is actually fulfilled from your local grocery store. So grocery stores are seeing an increase in volume, you know, 20, maybe 30%. Um, the bulk of that is because of the shift from the restaurant to retail consumption. Well, Barbara, I think what Fred is really uh, putting his finger on is the merger, in many ways, of industrial and retail, particularly in the grocery sector. What are you seeing, Barbara? The amount of money and the amount of capital that now want to be in industrial real estate is staggering. I do see that we had a pause for the last couple months because people were trying to assess the situation in the COVID period, but coming out of it, I feel that this segment, the industrial and the cold storage, there are more and more investors kind of flocking to it. And to kind of address specifically the cold storage, there are a lot of pension funds and REITs that are paying attention to the cold storage more than they've ever have. And there's whole business plans and funds being raised around that business segment. So typically in my world, there was always a pretty big cap rate differential between what a cold storage building would sell for and what a standard warehouse would sell for. And that gap has really narrowed. And I would argue to say that in some cases, it's at equilibrium depending on the market that it's located. Well, given that investors are so interested in it, we're probably going to see more of it. Uh, But Fred, do we need more supply of cold storage? Yeah, it's the growth of, you know, the industry as a whole is pretty steady at, you know, call it one to to two, maybe two and a half percent. Um, It's really driven by two things. It's driven by population growth. Population growth is what drives more volume that's going to get consumed. And then secondly, the move towards healthier living and and healthier lifestyles drives the need for more temperature control products. So the temperature control section of your local grocery store is far and away much larger than what it was 15 years ago, 20 years ago. Now, the difference when we talk about pension funds and and other investors want to come into the space, they are looking to get into the space. And most of those are are our investors into our company and lenders to other people in the industry. Um, But it's very difficult to enter the space. It's a very technical business. I think what Fred said is completely kind of on point, which is it's a pretty limited field. We sold two cold storage buildings last year and we had a tremendous amount of interest. But um, I don't see a bunch of inventory flooding the market. Yeah, it's, a, it's an expensive asset class. So, you know, this, to Barbara's point, people don't build on spec. Um, you know, these assets cost, you know, three times the price of a, of a typical industrial building. And having, a, you know, 250,000 to 400,000 square foot building sitting at zero degrees empty is not a good value proposition. So 
um, very difficult and it creates a big barrier to entry into our industry. Well, not only do you have to cool it, you have to cool it 24 hours a day, seven days a week, holidays, no matter what. You That's just can't right. stop. No time off. <laughs> what we're really doing is we're preserving food right? And, and keeping it in our freezer for a long, long time. Um, you know, we talk about ice cream, for example. You know, when you take ice cream and you put it in your freezer at home after it's been in the grocery store, it doesn't last that long, does it? Um, that's because it's being stored at zero degrees or maybe minus five degrees if you really got the dial turned up. Um, ice cream needs to be stored anywhere from minus 10 to minus 20 degrees, right? So at home, it's only lasting maybe a week in your freezer. In our buildings, it can last months because the insulation, the way that our business works, the, the facilities themselves um, are there to protect that food. Um, the way that we do that is we have about a thousand people in our organization that are refrigeration experts. So we can't just call the repairman when we have a problem with the condenser or something and wait two days for him to come in and fix it. The food would, would go bad, right? The temperature would rise. So we have people on staff 24-7 in all of our facilities monitoring our systems and maintaining. Because we are the operators, we maintain them ourselves as, as well, and it prolongs the life of that asset. Well, Fred, you know, I'm, I'm going to have to pause the podcast because i got to go to my refrigerator right now and lower the temperature <laughs> to minus 10. I was always wondering why my ice... I've got three kids at home. My ice cream is never good enough for them. You well, have just saved my kids. <laughs> They're standing in front of the door looking, trying to figure out what they want to eat. And meanwhile, the temperature rose five degrees. Exactly. So, Barbara, traditional industrial uh, doesn't have as long of a shelf life, to use the same term, as does um, cold storage. And matter of fact, we are seeing a massive replacement cycle right now where we're seeing new modern facilities with automation, higher stories. Tell us what's going on there. Well, what I would tell you is that the e-commerce and some of the trends, people are looking at how to be more efficient. So if they can use the cube height with higher clear buildings, you know, you've seen some of the uh, e-commerce multi-story type uh, facilities, and they're using robotics and automation to really help uh, facilitate this. You know, it's interesting to me because of what we've just gone through with this uh, COVID period, is robotics, is automation going to become more and more important? Um, certainly much easier to social distance and keep people apart when you've got, you know, machines that are doing a lot of the heavy lifting. So, you know, I think that's going to be a trend that's going to continue. On the automation front, just to pick up on what Barbara was saying, um, you know, we, we are seeing an increase in automation in temperature control. Um, albeit it's still a very small percentage here in the U.S., less than 1% of our facilities are, are automated. Um, that is starting to shift, and you know we're doing a lot of automation now. Uh, we just built a facility, to your point about the, the height of these buildings, we just built a facility in Chicago that's up and running that's 140 feet tall. So, you know, pretty, pretty tall building that you can see, you know, five miles away. The reason for that is, uh, you know, automation you know, obviously takes out that labor component. And, you know, pre-COVID, remember, we were running at unemployment levels that were close to 2%. So it wasn't about replacing costly labor. It was about being able to find labor to work in zero degrees. Um, but uh, the ROI for automation is starting to come into play. Um, being a large player, handling the big national accounts that we do gives us a little bit more volume 
and volume helps you overcome some of that cost, that investment that you need to make in automation. So we think it's a, it's a big deal. Um, it's gonna help us as we go forward uh, to make sure that we're able to keep the food supply chain running um, if indeed we do run into a labor shortage, which you know, I expect when the economy snaps back and more manufacturing comes back to the States, um, I, I think uh, employment levels are gonna be uh, extremely high and hard to find labor. Well, let's talk about that labor issue because I think that's critically important, Barbara. So how much does labor play a role in the value and the location of industrial real estate? So every major company that's looking to place a new facility, if they're not doing a labor analytics study before they do that, you know, there's something wrong. I mean, labor is a huge part of it. You know, the cost of rent is only a small component of the overall picture. But if you don't have the necessary labor and the labor at a price point where you can afford to hire these people, it's a problem. We're seeing markets really open up that, you know, are just totally driven by labor. People who don't want to commute and potentially will take a job in, you know, a certain location versus another because the commute time, et cetera. Um, labor is kind of been a critical factor. It's interesting now coming out of COVID with, you know, higher unemployment rates, not sure if that's going to be less of an issue, but believe me that I think it's going to be, continue to be a concern for folks. Let's pull back the lens a bit. One of the implications of COVID, I think, showed that we were not resilient enough. There was too much just-in-time delivery, and because of that, we had shortages, number one. The other mega trend we're seeing is maybe we'll see some more manufacturing coming back here. Fred, do you see either of these trends impacting cold storage? I think, uh, you know, th there was a lot of hype in the beginning when everybody blitzed the grocery store. I, I wouldn't say the grocery industry is uh, just in time by any means. And it's certainly not as streamlined and as efficient as maybe the automotive industry where just in time really kind of, you know, was born. Um, you know, at any given time, there's roughly four months of food inventory in the food supply chain. And, you know, what we saw in the beginning is when everybody blitzed the grocery store, which holds about 30 days of inventory, they emptied it out overnight. Um, so it wasn't that we were out of food. It's just that nobody was prepared to backfill 30 days worth of inventory overnight. Um, and so the retail distribution center needed to backfill the grocery store. The regional distribution centers needed to backfill the, the retail distribution center and the manufacturing distribution centers need to backfill the major logistics corridors. So it was just a big tug on the supply chain um, and moving all the inventory forward. You know, we have 2,600 different customers and every one of them is going to act probably a little bit differently. But in aggregate, I expect it to, you know, level our heads to prevail once we come out of this. And, and I don't expect to see four months of inventory going to five months of inventory. We certainly learned our lesson about getting your toilet paper early yes. in this pandemic. Um, <laughs> well, toilet paper, you can load up the garage full. You know, frozen food, you only have so much space in your freezer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I would tell you that just in case became definitely a mantra. And most people were not prepared um, they didn't have enough inventory on hand to do that supply chain cycle that you just talked about, Fred. So I think that people are going to have more supply on hand for sure. And then the manufacturing piece that you talked about, Spencer, you know, one of the things that we're, you know, watching closely is um, manufacturing coming in closer in here, as well as to Mexico versus China. So it's easier to get, you know, into the United States. And I think that's going to be a trend. So I think it's something we should watch. Fred, I know you have assets globally in Australia. You have some in Argentina. 
Could you give us a little bit of a global perspective on the supply chain? You know, look, around the world, the vast majority of countries that we operate in um, manufacture and consume within country, the vast majority of food. Now, you know, here in the United States, we export a tremendous amount of things like pork and chicken to China, for example. Um, you know, so there certainly is an export component and we import a tremendous amount of produce from places like South America. Um, so the food supply chain is really connected globally because that local grower in Brazil is temperature controlling that product. It gets put onto a container that's temperature controlled. It arrives at a port and enters into a port facility that's temperature controlled and then moves through the rest of the supply chain as I described earlier. So that global cold chain is so integral. Um, now there are countries around the world that unfortunately aren't quite there in terms of either government regulations or infrastructure and that type of thing to be able to support the continuity of that cold chain. But uh, the more developed countries certainly are, and we're seeing other developing countries start to pick up on that capability. And that's really what the Global Cold Chain Alliance is all about, is, is kind of sharing those best practices, going around the world and upping the standards so that we can maintain that integrity worldwide. Barbara, let's stay on this global theme for a moment, because there's no business that's more global than industrial. Why don't you touch upon how global the business is, and specifically in light of global investors in the space? We have seen a tremendous amount of interest internationally. I think U.S. is seen as a safe haven. So people from, you know, Canada, from China, from the Middle East, you know, from Japan are looking to do development here. There's lots of investment that is coming in from overseas. I have to say, though, during this period of time, in the last, probably if you look back at the statistics for 2020, it has slowed down. I think that's because people were dealing with their own issues in their own countries. I think travel stopped, people couldn't tour. So I think that the foreign investment in U.S. industrial or U.S. real estate period will show a, you know, a downturn in 2020. I do think that our volumes level, generally speaking though, because we're gonna have a huge third and fourth quarter, will be kind of on par, even though we had a couple of months of a slowdown. One of the things that was the negative fallout from COVID is uh, the not the demise, but the real challenges facing the restaurant space. Um, according to the National Restaurant Association, something 15, 20% of restaurants may never reopen. Um, how has that impacted the cold storage business, Fred? Yeah, you know, um, again, those people that aren't eating at those restaurants are getting their calories from somewhere else, um, mostly through retail right now. So it really has been a shift. Most food manufacturers are, are manufacturing product for both retail consumption as well as restaurant change. They just package it differently. Um, so the, the product, obviously, that was destined for your local restaurant is sitting in inventory, being preserved in storage and just not moving through the facilities as rapidly. Whereas the, the, the product that's destined for retail is spinning like a top right now. And so to your point, you know, a 15 to 20% of those small businesses don't come back. That's gonna be a tough blow to that industry for probably I'm guessing the next two years. So, you know, if you believe that the economy is gonna come back, there'll be other investors, there'll be other people that will find that as an opportunity and bring those businesses back to life. But it's certainly gonna take uh, a little bit of time to do so. Barbara, let me bring you in here. As an industrial sales expert, uh, there are gonna be a lot of dark stores out there. And does industrial fill some of those stores with distribution? 
we are going to start to see that where some of the larger stores could become that last mile distribution facility. And there's certainly a lot of groups that are trying to focus on that right now. I believe that that could be a good alternative for a lot of retail that is going to be sitting vacant. Um, cities, we need to get cities around that kind of concept where they're taking kind of retail, thinking about industrial zoning. We've certainly seen a couple of instances across the U.S. where they've taken down malls in key spots, Class C malls, and, you know, put FedEx facilities, Amazon facilities, e-commerce type fulfillment facilities. So I think it's going to happen in the future here, and I believe that it's a good answer. Fred mentioned the, the grocery stores becoming part of that grocery in-home delivery. I think that's gonna continue as well as some other methods to kind of enhance those distribution chains. To that point, Barbara, you know, in, at least on the grocery sector, that's exactly what's happening with these grocery stores. It's kind of interesting. I remember, you know, probably a decade ago and back rooms were shrinking because people needed more store square footage. Um, now we're kind of seeing a little bit of the opposite. So we're seeing the back room expand and there's actually automation that's going into the back end of these stores to help make them more efficient with the pick to select those e-commerce orders. They're trying to get the employees out of the aisles and into the back room to make it a more efficient pick. So I know there's at least 50 projects right now going on um, around the industry at different grocery retailers that are doing that very thing. Let's face it, you know, e-commerce, the most difficult part of the cost structure of e-commerce is last mile delivery. And those grocery stores are strategically located within three to five miles of the population that they serve. I think the dark store concept is a perfect solution for e-commerce. So Barbara, we, we talked about a lot of mega trends here today uh, from globalization to automation. What trends didn't we talk about today that perhaps investors are thinking about uh, and should be looking at in the industrial space generally and specifically cold storage? We're definitely going to see expanded needs to keep inventory, especially medical right now, at least for the next couple of years, you know, more staples, more things. So I think that there's going to be a tremendous demand for inventory to be stored much more than before, and that's going to increase the industrial consumption and keep our vacancy rates low. Industrial going into this was very healthy. This was probably going into it was one of our strongest years ever kind of looking forward but things stopped for a few months, people have readjusted, and now they're looking at where to go from here. And I think that the amount of inventory that will be stored is going to be a huge trend that's gonna continue. So last question, Barbara, how long do the good times roll in the industrial business? Have you been on quite a roll for the last 10 years? What if anything is out there that might give you any pause whatsoever, or is it just gonna keep rolling? Well, we were on a big roll and then COVID happened and we were like, wait, what happened? What just happened? Like we were like, everybody thought something was going to happen to kind of derail things, but we never thought it was going to be a, you know, pandemic. But, um, and, uh, you know, fortunately, industrial is the winner um, and cold storage is going to be the winner. And so what we see is that we're going to have some good years to come as, you know, these trends that we've talked about today you know, implement themselves. We're going to have a few years of just, you know, development, class A space, e-commerce buildup. I think industrial has some running room and I'm pretty excited uh, uh, about that kind of continuing. Fred, same question to you. Uh, I'm not saying it's all been wine and roses, but it certainly has been uh, frozen ice cream and frozen chicken nuggets. And we expect that for a while. What, if anything, concerns you about the future, about cold storage, or is the good times going to roll for a while? 
I'm really bullish uh, that the good times will roll for a long time because uh, the one thing that could be said is uh, no matter what's going on out there, we're still going to eat. So, you know, I, I think the way that we look at our business is, you know, organic growth is nice, right? And then on top of that, you know, we're developing infrastructure out there to support the growth of, of our major food manufacturers. And then, you know, a big part of our business that's different and unique for us in our sector is we're actually getting retailers to start to look to outsource some of their infrastructure. Whereas most grocery retailers handle their own, you know, insourced uh, distribution. So, you know, we think the nice steady growth associated with population and consumption coupled with, you know, our continued, uh, you know, driving towards market share and then, you know, the outsourcing of retail, I think gives us a bright future ahead. Well, Fred, I think, I think you had the quote of the podcast, which is no matter what happens out there, you still got to eat. And that's good for cold storage. So on behalf of The Weekly Take, I want to thank you, Fred Bowler, CEO and President of Americold, and Barbara Perrier, Vice Chairman at CBRE, one of the leading industrial experts in the world. Thank you both. Great. Thanks, Spencer. Thank you. Bye-bye. For more information, go to CBRE backslash The Weekly Take. Until next time, I'm Spencer Levy. Be smart. Be safe. Be well. Be well.